Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Mike Wyking is the author who introduced the world to the concept of hugger. He joined Erica Wagner on stage in London to tell us about My Hugger Home, his guide to turning your home into a sanctuary. But he began by telling Erica how, a decade ago, he set up the world's first think tank to study happiness in his native Denmark. I think we actually have to go back to the sort of origin of the Happiness Research Institute, because as you said, I, I did found it 10 years ago. And it was actually this month, 10 years ago, I was stuck in the office at another think tank I was working for back then on sustainability. And one evening I stumbled upon something that had just been published at the time, the World Happiness Report, which was commissioned by the UN and gave an overview of the latest findings in happiness research, and it also provided a list of happiness levels in 155 countries around the world. And Denmark was in first place. And I thought, because I'd seen other rankings about livability, quality of life, and Denmark and the other Nordic countries were often doing quite well in these rankings. And I thought, there should be somebody in Denmark understanding why that is. There should be somebody creating a think tank on happiness. <laughs> Who could that be? Maybe I should do that. And I, I, I loved working with sustainability, and that's still close to my heart, but I thought happiness would be really fun to dive into. And I was laying awake at night thinking about all the different angles you could approach happiness from, from how does design and architecture impact how we feel, to policies, to education, to biology. So there are so many things you could explore. And I just really wanted to work with this field. But 2012, you remember, it was the wake of the financial crisis, and I had a stable job at an established think tank, and I thought maybe it's also a little bit risky and crazy to start a happiness research institute. But the, the, the personal side of the story was that I had a mentor at the company I was working for, uh, who I really looked up to in, in many ways, and he was 15 years older than I was. And he unfortunately got very ill and, and died uh, also in 2012, and died when he was 49. My own mother had also died when she was 49. So in 2012, I had 15 years left until I would be 49. Right. So naturally, I also started to reflect what if I only have 15 years left? Should I stay with this company, which is fine, but I'm not as excited about it as I was when I first started? Or I could venture out and try and establish this thing I just feel has a lot of energy and a lot of, of, of passion for my side. And then two months afterwards, I had quit my job and started out with what I thought was a, a good idea and a bad laptop. Um, <laughs> And now, uh, t 10 years after, I mean, that, that's going to be the best decision that I'm going to make in my career. And the first couple of years, we focused on policies. We looked a lot at the Nordic countries. Why is it they do well in happiness rankings? Trust is one element. There's a high level of trust in government, in each other. Uh, there's a really good work-life balance. We talked also about this backstage, paternity leave, maternity leave. A, a, a lot of policies allow people to live good lives. But there was also some things that we didn't explore from a policy point of view that I started to recognize perhaps also could play a part. And that was 
the cultural element or how we go about our lives or what we prioritize. And, and, and that's why I started to look at Hugo in 2015 and started to talk to British media about it. And then suddenly uh, Penguin reached out and said, that sounds super interesting. Can you write a book about that? And then it sort of uh, exploded. And it was, it was really fun to research a phenomenon that is so ingrained in a culture uh, that you grow up with. Because suddenly you start to see all those different layers of the, of the onion and how much it actually influenced our lives and our conversations and how cafes advertise for coffee and beer and hygge, even though that you can't It's not buy. a thing you can tell. And so, so, so that was really fun to sort of be a sort of, sort of Indiana Jones in your own country and see, okay, what, this phenomenon, again, phenomenon. Uh, how, how this does, thing. This, this thing, thing. How does it impact uh, how we feel? By the way, English is not my first language, evidently. Uh, it gets me into trouble from time to time. Two things. I've, I've noticed when I speak English instead of Danish, I need to concentrate more. So I, I look more grumpy when I concentrate. It doesn't mean that I'm not happy to be here. And also, uh, there, there was an incident uh, on live television a couple of years ago. Uh, I, w I was here in the UK to, to talk about uh, my second book, The Little Book of Lücke. And I was on this morning show, and one of the hosts there, I think it's called Phil, and uh, he, was, he, he said, so you've written about Hücke, he was pronouncing it as, as well as you were, and you've written about Lücke, what are you going to write about next? And he spoke Danish really well, uh, I thought, and I also know a lot of the Danish TV dramas, like The Bridge and Borken, have been showed in the UK in the original language, so I thought he'd seen them. So I said, hey, well done on pronouncing Danish, you must have been watching a lot of Danish Born, which is how we pronounce it. But he heard a completely different thing <laughs> and started to laugh. And the other host was saying, what did he say? I'm afraid to ask. And that was the end of the interview. So, so if there's anything that's unclear, I'm, I'm sorry about that. But uh, that, there we are some things that are difficult to We will cut you plenty of slack. I, I promise. I promise. You know, it occurs to me when you, when you say that, that Huga in, I think maybe in people's lives... In, I can talk about Britain and America, is maybe thought of, the, you know, the distinction to me is that it's, of course we recognize it, but it's a kind of private thing. You know, it's something you kind of look for, think about privately, I'd like to feel. It's fascinating that you say that bars, you know, would advertise, we have great beer, we have great food, we can offer you hygge, as a kind of public right. statement. Um, Before we kind of talk about the design elements of the book, I am interested to, to talk a little bit more about what you've just addressed, which is the culture that it exists within. I was fascinated to read in this, in this book about the, the, the ten virtues that Danes feel unite them. Can you say a little bit? about those? And, and maybe also, you know, and you talk about this later in the book, Denmark, like so many other countries, is no longer perhaps the homogenous nation that it was. How do those Danish virtues exist across the, the population? Yeah. That's a broad question. But, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so the 10 virtues, a couple of years ago there was a Danish minister for culture who wanted to create a, a canon around what are the essential Danish virtues. And people send in all sorts of suggestions and 
there was a national vote on them, and the minister finally selected 10 of them. And Hugo was one of them. And, and that's something that unites across all divides in Denmark, rich and poor, old and young. Some of the other ones were um, the Nordic welfare state. Yes, there are political divides in Denmark, but there's vast public support for the sort of main pillars in the political system. And it's interesting, usually when I talk to American journalists, especially, they will say, how can you Danes be so happy you pay the highest taxes in the world? <laughs> And I like to say, maybe we are happy because we are paying some of the highest taxes. 90% of Danes say they, to some extent, are paying their taxes with joy. And I think it's because Danes feel they get a lot in return for those taxes. And there's also the understanding that my quality of life is also influenced by how your son is doing. That happiness doesn't come from having a, a bigger, fancier car, but knowing that everybody that I know and care for is taken care of. And I think that that's quite ingrained in Danish culture. And also it's... it's You know, linking in with Hugi, it's not this pursuit of great sort of success and amazing things. Hugi is about enjoying the everyday. And, and, and that's what we prioritize. It is about good food on the table and good people around that table. And that is what will bring me joy today. And if we you know, continue to do that day after day, hopefully that also leads to a higher level of life satisfaction, which is what is measured in, in a lot of these surveys, like the World Happiness Report. Um, so I think some of the, the virtues are linked in, in that sense. Um, but yes, it is, uh, from, a, from a global point of view, a, a fairly homogenous uh, society, um, but less than it was uh, 30 years ago. Yeah. This book, your new book, of course, is about Huga in the home. So let's bring uh, the conversation round to design. And you, you start by talking about how, when we're watching Danish Scandinavian TV we're seeing this you know not just following the dramas but also seeing the interiors on display which make us salivate in different ways what is it about Danish design you mentioned Arne Jakobsen Hans Wegner to to me Danish design you know it, it's fascinating because there is a kind of coolness about it very clean lines, yet it's warm, yet it's welcoming. What does Danish design mean to you? To me, it means functionality, that we start with that. And that was also the original thought of the sort of golden age of classic Danish design. It was, it was to think about function first and peel off all ornamentation. But the idea was also, let's create great quality furniture that looks nice, that the everyday worker can buy and afford. That have gone a little wrong in the later years. And we're sitting in some beautiful chairs that are beyond my, my budget. Uh, but, but to me, that is, that is what it was about. It was creating good quality products for the everyman. But to me, design is also more than furniture. It's also about how we interact with the people we are sitting with in, in those furniture. And we can talk about the extra chair principle later on because I think yes. that's also a design thing. But, but design to me is a broad concept. It's about how we interact. It's how we design our cities, our streets, our homes. It's how we interact as families. And the whole idea 
for the new book actually started, I think, five years ago when I spoke to a Canadian guy who had read the little book of Hugo. And in that book, there's an entire chapter around lighting. Lighting is important because it, it changes the, or it influences the atmosphere in a room. And Danes prefer a nice, soft, warm light that has a positive impact on, on your mood. It also makes people look nicer. We call it looking grotto fabulous. And, and Danes will use a lot of candles. So, so Danes actually use uh, the most candles in Europe, twice as much as, as Austria, which are second. Uh, so so this, this Canadian guy who had read about that, he, he went home and he bought some uh, candle holders and he started to light candles uh, for dinner at home with his family. And uh, him and his wife have three teenage sons And at first, the teenagers, they started to tease their dad. Daddy, what's going on with the candles? Do you want to have some romantic time with mom? Should we leave? But he says, eventually, the boys, they started to light the candles for dinner. It showed him that they actually enjoyed that ritual. And what I really enjoyed him saying was that, he says, their family dinners now last 15 to 20 minutes longer. Because the candles changes the atmosphere around the table, puts the boys in a storytelling mood. So now they sip their wine, they talk about their day. So I thought, isn't it interesting that you know, candles are not going to save the world, but, but a little design change around a dinner table in a family changes how they interact. What other design hacks can we create that has a positive impact on our quality of life? And of course, I mean, famously, one of your guys said it, right? We shape our buildings and then they shape us. And we have a lot of evidence that that is true. So if you look at the uh, millennial cohort study, which you have here in the UK, great study, 12,000 kids are followed since they were born around the year 2000. See all their circumstances when they are kids and then how are they doing later in life. And this study showed when kids are seven, around 50% of them have a TV in their bedroom. Then four years later, those kids that have TV in the bedroom, 25% higher risk of obesity. Uh, we know from other studies, you know, if you have inadequate daylight in your home, you are more likely to become depressed. So we have a lot of studies that, that show us that the way we shape our homes impact our mental and physical health. So that's what, what, that was what I wanted to, to dive into with, with this book. And chairs come into it quite a lot, because you talk in the beginning of the book about your Viking chair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about that and about the empty chair. Right. So, so yeah, the, the, the Viking-proof seat in the yes, house Viking is, proof is seat. I, think, I think we all have that. A, a favorite place in our home, in our apartment, in our flat or house, where we feel the most comfortable. And typically, it's not going to be like this. I'm not going to, to have my back to the door. It, it's typically a place in the corner where we can, we can face the entire room. Uh, and there's different theories. One of them is, is something called the prospect refuge theory, that we like a place where we can have an overview of the room but feel protected from, from, from the back. Uh, and I, think that I'm, I, I don't think I'm special in that way. I think that's a, a common human preference. The extra chair principle was something I encountered three years ago or four years ago. We were looking at how to improve quality of life for young people, for a foundation in Denmark. And we followed different, do you call them, after-school activities. 
that kids were engaged in: dancing, singing, sports, going out into into nature. And we also followed a group of、uh, youngsters doing what they called live action role playing games. So basically, Dungeons and Dragons,、uh, elves, orcs into the forest with sort of rubber swords and so on. And we we followed them over time to see how does this activity impact their course happiness, risk of depression, self-esteem, sense of connection, sense of belonging, a lot of factors we were interested in in improving. And this group of youngsters that were involved in these live-action role-playing games were doing really well comparatively to to the other ones. And we started to explore what is it that they're doing so well. And one of the things we noticed that the way they organized these groups were, were quite exceptional. They were really focused on creating an inclusive environment. So they had the、uh, rule of the extra chair principle, meaning that if we were in a room sitting around a table, it would be Erica's and my responsibility that there would be an extra empty chair at the table. So it'd be easier for somebody to join this conversation around the table, and not look at the table and think, "Oh, there's no room for me、right. there," or having to drag an extra chair from across the room. And 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 that was so ingrained in their entire culture. It was also, if if we were at a at a conference and standing three people talking, they would open the circle up to say, "Now it makes it easier for a fourth person to actually enter this conversation." So this sort of let's always be. Mindful of how can we get somebody to enter this circle?、Uh, that was so ingrained in them,、uh, and, and that was one of the things that made these kids feel included in their tribe. And also because people or kids that join live-action role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, now I'm generalizing, were typically more introverted kids、uh, that had trouble sort of engaging in. Uh, other uh, activities, so so creating that inclusive environment, and that's also a design hack. So it's not just about the furniture; it's also how we place it and 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 how we interact. But that discussion about live action role playing, also another thing you talk about in this book、uh, later on, is the importance of play, and particularly what you call analog play. Can you say something about yeah that, and, and maybe and the and the role that it. Plays in home life in Denmark. I'm a big fan of analog play that makes us look away from our screens、uh, in families. I'm a big fan of board games, of puzzles, of Legos. I'm, I'm a Danish cliche, cliche <laughs> so, so Legos, because it gives us something to do. It allows us to work with our hands. It eliminates awkward converse,、uh, awkward silence because. We're building this puzzle or Lego piece or whatever, or we're playing a game, and it still allows us to have a conversation. I've also experienced it from you know, a group of grown-up men playing poker. It's the same. We are playing cards, but we can still have a conversation about how's it going with you after the divorce, and it, it doesn't have to be as confrontational that I'm sitting across from you having that conversation. But but sort of it, it makes it easier for that conversation to flow. And it's 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 I think it's a theme that I've been exploring in some of my earlier、uh, books as well. I, I think it was in the little book of Lucke. I talked about a Danish boarding school that、uh, tried to get young people off social media、uh, or off their devices.、Uh, so what this boarding school did was、uh, they have kids when they are fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen, 
And when the kids first arrive, they take the kids' iPhones from them and devices. And then they are allowed to have their phones for one hour per day. So one hour per day, you can go on TikTok and Snapchat and whatnot. But 23 hours of the day, no phones. And then after six months, it's put to a vote among the students, should we continue with this system or should everybody get their phone back? And on average, 80% of the kids vote to keep the system in place because then they experience, well, if none of us have our phone, we actually reach a critical mass for analog play and we connect with the people we are with. And of course, that is something a boarding school can do. I don't know how we do that as families or as streets, but I think it's interesting that when kids experience it, they actually prefer it. So that, that, that's one of the, the themes that I'm interested in exploring more. Hello, it's Vas here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think one thing it's important to say is, um, and you, you talk in the book about, um, I like this term, huga washing. Yeah. Um, I think it might be possible to look at a book that has the title of um, My Huga Home and think that it's an enticement to buy a lot of stuff. But that is not the case. No. <laughs> so, no, and, and that was one of the things uh, I was a little sad to see when first people started to, to, to get interested in Ihuga around the world, that there was a lot of focus on things and, 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 and furniture. Um, and there was an American journalist who called me and said, if I, if I want Hugo, what's the first thing I should buy? And I was Golly. like, you're doing Welcome it wrong. Welcome to America. Right? Um, and, and one of the themes that I can see now, I've been exploring for, for 10 years, is how do we decouple wealth from well-being? And this is such a rich area in my field of work. Um, and to Danes, hygge is inexpensive. Hygge is not about the furniture, but the people in the furniture. And I think Brits agree on this. And there is a study, and it's in the book as well. If you ask people in the UK, how do you turn a house into a home? None of them mention furniture. Or they do, but it's in seventh place, and it's a sofa. Uh, but the top six is happiness, love, a sense of belonging, the sound of laughter, um, people over for dinner, family and friends, and the smell of good food cooking. That is what turns a house into a home. And I, I completely agree. And, and the focus in this book is also, how do we eat better together? How do we get more family dinners? How do we spend more time at the dinner table, not at the kitchen table? A simple hack is uh, to use artichokes. I'm a big fan of artichokes. 
Why? Because it takes one minute to prepare, right? You boil the water, salt, half a lemon, cook the artichokes for 40 minutes, but it takes a long time to eat them because you have to peel off each leaf. So um, I, I joke about being a, a nerdy guy who likes numbers. So I, of course, measure how long our family dinners last. And when we have artichokes, they last 12 minutes longer. Um, also, pro tip, if, if you measure how long your family dinners are, tell your family about it before they read about it in your book, by the way. Uh, um, but, but, but that's what I'm interested in. How do we how do we cook more together? And that's also a big part of Hugo to Me. It's not just the eating part, but it's also the, the preparing the meal uh, together. Um, you have to, because I've lost it from our first discussion, you have to say the word again. Joy of, joy of ah, fooding. Uh, Melglil. Melglil. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the joy of food in, in, yeah. in, in Danish. And do Danes struggle as much as some of us do? Just, I mean, because you have to make the time to do it. I, I love to cook, and I'm committed to cooking, but still, it can be hard. What are your tips for arranging our busy days? I, I always have a list on my phone <coughs> of what is in my freezer. Um, because, That's quite something. And, and, and so, because we, have, yes, I may want to see it, you have, you have you have some You have some <laughs> leftover bolognese, and you freeze it, and then you think, I know this is bolognese. I will know this three months from now. But three months from now, you have added five other stuff in a bag that's also brown looking, and you have no idea what is what, right? And you throw it all in the trash. And the average UK household throw out 700 pounds of food each year. And especially with these days, inflation, groceries getting more expensive, we can't afford that. So the good thing is, you know, it, simple hack, you, you have a list on your phone, and I can see now we have some leftover rosé, so you can use that in the stew. We have some chicken, we have some red curry, we have some peas, and we have a lot of other things. But just the red curry, the chicken, and the peas, we can start. You have a meal. We have a meal. We, we had some rice. So, so that helps me also when I'm the, at the supermarket thinking, what, what do I have at home that we can already bake into it? Um, also, in terms of reducing the food waste, another design hack is in your fridge, have a retirement shelf or a hospice shelf. So in my fridge, it's the first thing I see. It's the, it's the most visible shelf. Everything I need to eat or we need to eat in the next day or two goes right on that front. shelf because otherwise it will be stuck behind some strawberry jam on the top shelf and I'll see two months from now uh, and then I need time to clean as well. So, so I think simple things like that makes it easier for us in, in, in a busy day. One of the things that really fascinated me about this book, and you talked earlier about lighting, because there's the question of how we light our homes with lamps or candles, but there's also the question of our natural rhythms, which are very much disrupted now by our working lives, by the fact that we're staring at screens all the time. Say a little about the importance of circadian rhythms and how we can reconnect yeah, and, and daylight. I think it's an overlooked area in, in architecture and in our lives as well, and also in, in, in happiness research. And no pun intended, but I think we're starting to see more light in, in, in this field or shine more light in this field. So, so earlier I said you had a higher risk of depression if, you are, if you're living in a home with inadequate daylight. Recently, we saw a study from the main hospital in Copenhagen that have people that are struggling with depression in the hospital, 
There's a difference in how long they spend in the hospital based on which side of the hospital they're in. So we are a northern country. We have more sunlight in the south-facing rooms than in north-facing rooms. So in the south-facing rooms, the patients spend an average of 29 days. In the north-facing room, it's 59 days. So now they're doing experiments with artificial light that follows the circadian light, so, 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 so the natural light of the day. We also have, have policies in Denmark, for example, in workplaces, you should be close to, to a window. And I think getting daylight is an overlooked way to actually boost our, our mental health. So in our homes, we should, of course, also consider how to get as much possible daylight in and how do we use the daylight we're actually given. So in my home, in, in the morning, I have really good lights uh, towards the, the front of the house, so that's where I sit and work. In the evening or in the afternoon, it's near the other side of the house. So that's where I, I'll, I'll, I'll go to later. So basically think like a cat, right? Go where the, the lighting is. But that, that's sort of the, the natural light. And then there's the artificial light. Yeah, earlier we joked about you know, the, the soft, warm light that also makes people look nicer. But, but we can also see that it changes not just how the family interacts, but also how pupils in school act. So there's a PhD student that have done a study in a Danish primary school. And instead of having this sort of white uniform light in the classroom, she has put in, I think you call them pendules? Yeah. So downward facing lights yeah. above uh, a range of tables. And she's observed that brings the kids up towards the table and give a more homey, calming atmosphere. And she has measured that the reduction in noise in decibels is around six, which means going from the conversation in a noisy restaurant to a conversation at home. So it has a, a noticeable uh, effect on the noise level of kids. So I think working with lighting um, is, is, is overlooked when we decorate our homes. Of course, people should think function first, going back to the classic design principle. What should I use this room for? Some lighting is good for a cozy conversation. You want to have pockets of light for that. But of course, if you want to clean the table, then you should have a, a, a whiter, a brighter light. But yeah, lighting is, is key to, to atmosphere and, and key to, I think, good design also. Have you been to our, the British Library in London, in St. Pancras, I wonder? Yes, I have. There, there was a really cool exhibition on uh, Thomas More a couple of years ago. Yes. Um, who, of course, wrote Utopia. So being a naive happiness researcher, I had to go explore You had to that. go. Yeah, yeah. But when it opened, I was struck, because I, I was, at the time, I was literary editor of the Times, and so I was writing pieces about the opening of the new British Library. And I didn't like the, the building. I found it kind of, you know, it's constrained by the fact of what it has to do. It didn't want to compete with the grandeur of St. Pancras. But I found it a pretty kind of brutal building. But inside, I, I loved it pretty quickly, and I, I love to work there. And I've become aware that a lot of it is to do with it's beautifully lit. And when you go and sit in the reading rooms at the desks, it seems clear to me they've spent a lot of money just on the little desk right. lamps. And you switch them on, and you're ready to go. You've got your little pool of nice yellow warm light on your papers, and all these other people around you working in the same way. 
and it's Huga scholarship. <laughs> what, what it sounds would, good. Now I want to go again. It. Yeah, it's worth. But buying. I think that, that that's also a, a, a good advice, actually, to sort of to observe how do I feel in different places, and why is it that I feel nice in this place, and what are the elements that I can then sort of incorporate uh, at home? Maybe it's a million what would books. what would you say? I mean, obviously, we want I want to give away all the secrets in your book because we want people to buy it, but if there were three things, perhaps, that people could consider to right away maybe improve the quality of life in their home, what might you suggest? Lighting is important. I I, I think that's the quickest way to change how a room feels, is to, to change the lighting if it's not optimal, if it's not good enough. And of course, think, think function first. But if, if you have a living room, then, then think about sort of pockets of light in the corners. Candles always a good idea, but, but, but lighting tremendously important. Then I think also think tactile. It's not just about how things look, but also how they feel. Uh, the ectal peen you spoke about before uh, with the, size, uh, the, the, the soft fabric. But then also consider you know, what, what, what kind of conversations would I actually like to have in this room? Uh, and, 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 and how do I make this room feel welcoming for my guests uh, would be a third thing. But my hope is, especially with the days being as they are with turbulence in the world and soaring prices and a war on a, a continent, that, that we help people understand, you know, what can I influence and what can I control? We don't have control over the global pandemic or the war in, in, in Ukraine, um, but we do have control over what is happening within our four walls. And we do have control over what's for dinner tonight. We do have control over how the conversation is going to be around the table, what the atmosphere is going to be around the table. So that, that's where I put my focus. Of course, we should help out if we can. We, donated the profits from the Happiness Museum in March to the Red Cross in in Ukraine. But my focus is how do I improve the quality of life at home also. And then third or fifthly, I guess, is um, always be mindful of when you decouple wealth and well-being. What activities do I enjoy that are free? In Denmark, we often talk about the ABC for mental health. So doing something active, doing something together, with other people where you belong and doing something where you commit, doing something meaningful. So act, belong, commit. So for me, it might be uh, going to a forest with my friends looking for edible edible mushrooms. We're outside, we're active, we're together, we're doing something meaningful, we're looking for food. Um, So so understanding how we can sort of remove the power that that money uh, sometimes have over us is is a fifth advice, I would say. And I think... I'm very glad you raised that because when we're talking about arranging our spaces, you know, there can be a feeling of an an awareness of being privileged to have such a space. One of the things that you talk about, and, and as you say, we're all feeling the pinch in more economically straightened situations, and of course there are wars and devastation, but you talk about a really fascinating project called a Friendly Housing Plus. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that? I was fascinated to learn about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in, in, in Copenhagen where the city have tried to, to sort of um, kill several birds with one stone. So, so in part help inter- integration and in part reduce rents for students. So it's, it's a housing design where two Danes live with two refugees or one day with one refugee in a, in a shared apartment. Uh, so the students get a lower rent uh, than they would otherwise get in Copenhagen. And the refugee gets to know a, a Dane that helps them out with, okay, how do I fill out this blanket for the whatnot office? And also start integration already from, from day one. Um, so, so again, that's a design hack. And, and I think it, it's overlooked how important design is in, in connection, in a sense of community. I also talk about this in the book in terms of whether we become friends with our neighbors or mm. not is very much a matter of how our streets are designed. And something as, as crude as to saying, do you live in a cul-de-sac or do you live in a through street, has a tremendously big impact on whether you're going to develop a friendship with your neighbor. You are twice as likely to have borrowed food or tools from your neighbor if you live in a cul-de-sac compared to a through street. There's some some issues then with cul-de-sacs because through streets are more livable. But I think being aware of how the design of the street impacts how we act and how we feel uh, is important. You mentioned the Happiness Museum. I was going to ask you about it. What is a happiness museum? What happens there? It's, it's, it, it was, it was, it was um, so when you work at the Happiness Research Institute, you get a lot of requests from people who want to come by and see your office. <laughs> uh, and it, 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 I think it's because we, you know, people imagine we spend all day with puppies and ice cream. Uh, but but mainly, mainly we sit in front of laptops. Only the look, morning with puppies. Look, most in the morning. Yeah. Puppies, 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 lunch. Puppies, <laughs> um, so so, so we, we have a regular office. We should improve the lighting in that one, actually. Um, but we thought, why don't we create a place where people can come and explore some of the questions and answers that we are trying to, to work with? And... We're a think tank. We bring our findings to a wider audience. We have conversations with policymakers, with uh, CEOs, with citizens, and we do reports, we write books, we teach at universities, and we thought a museum is also a way you can communicate findings through. And honestly, I also just thought, thought it would be really fun uh, to, uh, to, to create a, a museum. So, so, so we found a, a uh, location in Copenhagen, and it's a small place, but we say it's a, it's a small museum about the big things in life. And we have different rooms with different themes in them. So there's um, the history of happiness, so how have the perception of the good life evolved over time. Uh, we have a room around the science of happiness, so how do weird scientists like myself try and quantify well-being. Um, but my favorite room by far is a room where we have asked people to write down on post-its what happiness is to them. And I was there on Monday last week with a, a group of Americans, and one of them said, you cannot be in this room and not smile. And it's, it's, 
both I think, I think as, a, as a private individual, but, but also as a happiness researcher, it's so much fun and it's so relatable what people have written on those post-its. There's a lot of food. <laughs> there is a lot of relationships. Um, and there's the, the original also ones that there's somebody who wrote, happiness is a good quality lawnmower and a big lawn to mow. <laughs> and, and the older I get, the more I get that. Um, <laughs> But we've also asked people, you know, to, before we open the museum, to donate an object that were a manifestation of happiness to them. And uh, we had a French uh, woman who donated asthma medicine, because when they were living in Paris, her daughter had to use asthma medicine. Now she lives in, in Denmark, and the air pollution is uh, less, so the daughter has, don't have to use it. Um, from Paolo in the Philippines, we have a, a harmonica, so Paolo used to play the harmonica a lot when he was in high school. Um, and then at the high school dance, he gets dumped by his date, and he's standing outside the gym and feeling as we do when we get dumped. Uh, and then he hears a woman singing around the corner, and he pulls out his harmonica and starts to play the tune the woman is singing, and that's how he met his wife. So we have things like that, and, and see, this is the reaction you get, because, because we, we all get that. And, and that's what I like about the room, that, that it shows us how similar we are across cultures, that, that happiness looks very much the same in Denmark and the US or the UK and the Philippines. It is about connection, it is about sense of purpose, it is about belonging, it is about melglil. Um, and, 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 and that's what we wanted to do with, uh, with the room. And it's usually you know, I want to say small, although it's very big, but it's by small I mean intimate. Yeah. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. I want to make sure that we have time for your questions. I still have a few of my own, but um, can we bring the lights up just a tiny bit so I can see the folks in our audience? And I think we have a roving. Ooh, how nice you all are! Hi, um, we have a couple of roving mics. There's uh, someone in lovely orange flowers at the front here. Um, hello. Going back to Professor Layard and his research at the London School of Economics, I was lucky to hear him speak once, and he said, we know what doesn't make you happy. It's not status. It's not money. It isn't marriage, certainly for women, interestingly. <laughs> the one thing, if there was one magic bullet that he wants to tell people about, it's spending time with like-minded people. I wonder if you could tell us something about how Danish social policy um, works to really help this epidemic of loneliness that we're seeing. I'm a big fan of Richard as well. And I, I think, I mean, he's basically the Mick Jagger of happiness research for those of you that <laughs> haven't met him. And also just to say that I know we have a happiness research institute in Copenhagen, but you in the UK are actually leading the way in many other respects. I mean, Richard have been working with this for, for many years. You have really good data 
on happiness. You do an annual uh, survey in the UK around happiness. I wish we had the same in Denmark. Uh, you are leading in reducing uh, stigma around mental health. So, so, so many great things are, are happening. We have a challenge with loneliness as well in Denmark. And we know it's detrimental to well-being. And actually, I, I say if I cannot ask people directly how happy they are, I would ask them about their loneliness levels or connection or social fabric because that gives me a pretty good indication of where they are. A lot of things also matter, but this is one is, is, is tremendously important. I think what works well in Denmark is a rich community life. A lot of people are members of different clubs, uh, scouts, soccer, tennis, knitting, and that's, that's typically how a lot of Danes sort of develop their social fabric. We have some issues, actually, I would say, in terms of loneliness for expats. So what I hear from a lot of my international friends is that the Danish social circles are really difficult to penetrate, uh, that it takes a really long time and a lot of effort to penetrate the, the Danish social circles because of several things. Uh, one thing is you are much more spontaneous in, in the UK, where, where Danes are, are much more planned. So when I had British or American colleagues, they would say, what are you doing tonight or tomorrow? We're going out for a beer. And that's booked, but how about December? <laughs> um, so that, that's an issue. And then Danes were not so good at opening up our circle. So let's say uh, that we're meeting tonight. And Erica says, so what are you doing tonight? And I could say, you know, I'm meeting, what's your name? Karen. You should meet Karen. She's really great. She knows Richard Layard. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> uh, and, and, and we'll all meet. And in a Danish context, you know, Erica will ask, what are you doing tonight? And I'll say, I'll meet Karen. Um, uh, so how about December? Because you keep the circles well, a yes, little bit because, separate. Yes, because Erica doesn't know Karen, and um, I actually want to pick up that conversation we had the last time about the poker guy I know who's struggling with his divorce, and it, that's so. So, so, so we're not so good at opening up our circles, and we we sort of keep it yes separate, which is a bad thing, and I think that that could be sort of the dark side of 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 the Hugo culture that it's 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 simply too sort of too tight. So that's one of the things that I think the Danes need to work with uh, in terms of opening up our circles. But coming back to, to also your, your question, there's a lot of focus these years, also in Denmark, on reducing loneliness. So there's an alliance against loneliness and, and, and a lot of efforts to sort of counter that. Um, but it's tricky because we, we have a, a, a strong, vital community life but we still have people that are sitting inside their flats and not taking part in that. So, so building that bridge, we are also struggling with in, in Denmark. You have had a, a minister for loneliness. I'm not sure you still do. Is that still a thing? But at least that showed sort of focus on the area, area from, from a political side. We didn't have that in, in Denmark. Uh, but it is, it is a, 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 a global challenge that, that we definitely need to solve. Yeah. And you are mentioning that actually makes me think of, I was going to ask you about your wonderful TED Talk, which is about the dark side of happiness, which you alluded to just now, is that if you are in a culture 
that seems to be rated globally as being so happy, it could surely be quite tough if you're not feeling so great. How do you deal with that? Yeah, the, the, I mean, there, are, there is evidence that suggests that it's, it's more difficult to be unhappy in an otherwise happy society because it creates a stronger contrast. We actually see that sa- the same thing with loneliness. There's some studies in Denmark that, that show that loneliness is felt more during spring and summer because being the country we, we is, you know, we have summer short period of time, uh, and then in the wintertime we're, we're all back in our, in, our, in our homes. But in the spring and in the summer, you are more exposed to the community you are not part of. You go to the park and you see friends hanging, hanging, out, hanging out. You go to the beach, you see barbecues. And, and, you're, and you're, not if, you're not in, if you're not there. Right. Um, so, 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 so we are very social beings and we do compare ourselves to each other. That goes for happiness, that goes for sort of sense of connection with other people. So that, that's a big theme in, in happiness research. It's also one of the reasons why sometimes social media can have a negative impact on you because you're exposed to what seems to be Supposedly. perfect lives that everybody else is, is living, right? Um, so so, so that's, a, that's a big theme. Another question. Um, further to the, the darkness point, <laughs> um, you touched earlier on your Danish kind of TV dramas and films, and it's this very dark Nordic noir. And how, and perhaps why, does that sit alongside the sort of framework of happiness for which the country is, is, is so well known? How can the two sit side by side? Or are we not seeing the Danish rom-coms? <laughs> no, we only get the crime dramas. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure this is this is true, but I was once told that uh, crime fiction does really well in countries with a low murder rate. Um, I, think, I think Danes are doing a lot of crime dramas because we need some excitement in life. <laughs> uh, but but, but um, yes, we have a lot of darkness. We have a, I was telling Haley this earlier, my, my colleague from, from Penguin, um, we have 179 days of rain per year we have one of the highest tax rates in the world. Um, so a lot of good reasons to be the happiest country in the world. But, but I think that, that, yes, we have dark periods, but we also have some really light periods. We have a lot of light in the summer. It gets light 4 o'clock in the morning and light until 11 or even midnight. And maybe the, the darkness in the winter months makes us more appreciative of the light we have and the good weather we didn't have in the summer. I once lived a few months in, in Mexico. Great weather every day. And I don't think I, 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 I appreciate it as much as I do when there's a great summer's day in, in Denmark. So I think that the, the dark winters makes us more grateful. And I think gratitude is, is a wonderful thing when it comes to, to happiness. And perhaps also something that we have all experienced you know, with the pandemic the sort of the simple things we took for granted earlier, like meeting a friend for coffee at a cafe, suddenly that was removed for us for a year. Uh, and my hope is that we sort of remember how important that actually is. But, but Danes are reminded every year 
that appreciate the good summer days uh, <laughs> because we're heading into, into darkness. Um, and, and, and that is also what Hygge is about. It's about sort of making the best of the situation and feeling sheltered from the outside. And I believe in Sweden, for instance, they have the sort of national advice that you should always have seven days worth of food and water in your house if you're snowed in. And, and I think that's also the sort of Hygge feeling that, that, that you want to make sure your pantry and fridge is stocked so you can just basically be inside for a week when the weather is really lousy. Um, I lived in Norway for two years, and I know how they like to maximize the light. They're always the curtains open, candles outside, trees lit up as well. So I never close my curtains now in the sitting room. Um, but I find this is a t- hopefully a tip. I don't know whether there's been a study done on it, but when I light candles in my house in the winter, psychologically I feel warmer and I hope people will, <laughs> this winter, light candles. And I don't know whether there's been, a, you've talked a lot about light, but it really makes me feel warmer, even just lighting a candle in the candlelight. Has there been a study on that? Or? Not to my knowledge, but, but I, from anecdotal evidence, I hear a lot of that, that exact story, that it has a positive impact on how people feel. Um, but it's interesting, with, with Norway... Uh, being even further north than, than Denmark. Uh, I can't remember the name of, of the town, but there's a town in Norway that never sees daylight in the wintertime because there are mountains that sort of puts it in shade. Now, they have installed large mirrors on the mountain wall, so for, for an hour per day, they can all gather in the middle of town and get some sunlight, <laughs> which I think is a wonderful thing. Um, but maybe we need a giant candle uh, around the country too. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not familiar with, with, uh, with scientific studies on that one. <laughs> Hello. Hello. You mentioned awkward silences earlier. And I recently read an article about how a Scandinavian country has perfected the art of just being together with the awkward silences included. Do you have any conversation advice? From Denmark. Do, do I have any conversational any? advice for getting over the awkward silences? Yeah, I think I think having something in your hands actually help. Um, some of some of the best conversations I've had with people where there might have been awkward silences included was when we were working with our hands. If we were painting something or uh, building something. Um, it, it removes the pressure from, from, from having a conversation. And some people just need more time to sort of digest what you've just said and develop a response. And I think, I think that's great because you'll probably often get a better response from, from that than somebody who can just sort of instantly uh, deal out a, a response. But, but yeah, having something to do doesn't have to be Legos. Um, but if you're painting, if you are gardening, if you are playing with a dog, um, th- I think that, that can sort of remove the, the, the awkwardness from, from the conversations. I've just learned to play poker. I'm a very new, novice poker player. We should play. I'm, I'm up for it. I'm game. <laughs> but the friend who taught me to play, you know, I said to her, 
that in sort of some social situations, despite the fact I'm perfectly comfortable sitting on a stage, I feel quite awkward. And then we were going for a poker night, and she said, well, aren't you worried? And I said, no, because we'll have something to do. You know, I'm, yes, I'll be meeting all these new people, but we're all there to play poker. Right. And it just made the atmosphere for me completely different. Who else? Thank you. First of all, thank you for a very interesting, really interesting and thought-provoking discussion. Um, while you were talking, something struck me that I wonder, it's all very well us lighting candles in our home and creating huga in our own environment, but how do you impress on the powers that be the importance of huga? Um, and I ask this uh, because it seems that more and more life is dictated by digital data measurements, tick box. And if the wrong question is asked, the wrong answer will be given. And to me, there's a very vivid illustration of that in this country at the moment, which is a railway line, HS2, <laughs> costing 50 billion quid, cutting up the countryside, going from London to Manchester to shave 10 minutes off the time. And I listened to a very interesting radio program the other day from somebody who was Hooger but didn't really realize it. And he said if the right questions had been asked, if those yellow post-its had been on walls, what people, actual passengers, would have said was they don't mind getting to Manchester 10 minutes longer, but they'd like decent Wi-Fi, a seat, fewer stairs at stations a decent cup of coffee on the train, and pleasant staff. You know, that makes their journey pleasurable, not 10 minutes off the time. And it seems to me that more and more, when huge national decisions are being taken, uh, Huga is, is threatened, and yet it's what we all need. So how do you challenge it? How do we learn to ask the right questions. Mm. Yeah. My hope is that, that we're actually slowly starting to do that with, with happiness research, where we are quantifying happiness and quality of life. I think the, the reason why, for example, with, with, with the train journey is a challenge, is that if something lasts 60 minutes instead of 70, obviously 60 must be better. And it's the same with, with jobs. You know, if a job pays 29 instead of 28, obviously 29 must be better because it's so easy to compare. But what about the beauty of the trip? What about the quality of the food? What about the quality of the comfort in the train? There's no numbers on that. And, and what we're trying to do with, with happiness research is to bring numbers to the tables with the decision makers. You asked earlier about you know, what we're doing in, in, in Denmark. Um, one of the things we, we did a few years ago was we worked for a municipality just outside Copenhagen and looked at what are the barriers and drivers for quality of life for citizens in this town. And what we found was that loneliness was the biggest barrier. And we got the mayor and city council to abolish a fee that was to take part in a local community center suddenly they had 300% more in members. 
I don't think we needed the study to tell the mayor <laughs> that loneliness was an issue for people's well-being. But some people are just more comfortable making decisions when there is numbers on the table. But there is a lot of evidence now on, on, on the importance of, of nature, for instance. Uh, another really cool study you have here in the UK is called Mappiness, where people have been using their uh, phones and one, two, or three times a day are asked, how happy do you feel right now? And we follow Karen and we follow Erica for a year. And then we see when Erica is in the, by the seaside, she's happier than when she's in London. And, and, and we get a lot of data, and we use tens of thousands of people, and then we can see when people are in the countryside, they're actually happier when they're in the city. So, so, so more data is coming, uh, and, and, and my hope is that we are, can use that to, to make better decisions politically. We can also see that with, with companies now. The biggest job search site in the US, I think it's called Indeed, they now have, for each company, a, a happiness at work score, where current and former employees have rated the company based on stress levels, happiness at work, and other factors. So when you're sitting there making the decision, should I seek this job that pays 29, but only has a happiness score of six, or this one that pays 28, but has a happiness score of 9.5, probably go with the, with the latter. So I think the more data we get, the, the better decisions, hopefully, we will also get. Uh, at least I'm a naive Danish happiness researcher, but, but that's my hope. Last question. Person at the back. Getting back to the very first question, you, you spoke a lot in your opening remarks about um, uh, cooking together and eating together and the length of time spent on, on the, around the dinner table and the conversations being held. And I just wondered, um, given that there's so many more single-person households um, where you don't have the luxury of those events or those tasks to, to help to create the atmosphere, um, if you're a single person, particularly in a society like maybe in Denmark or in places where I've worked and lived, where the surrounding society might be a very happy one, but not so, not so welcoming of people who don't speak the language and are different. Um, do you, I'm curious as to whether or not you address that in your book, as to what, how does the single person in maybe not the most welcoming of societies create that huga for him or herself? Yeah, I think that, that brings us back to and it's a good question. I think that brings us back to, to how we design our cities and our streets. Earlier we talked about the cul-de-sacs versus the, the through streets. But we can also see if you live in an apartment building with a nice yard, a boring yard, or no yard at all. If you have a yard, you have more connections with your neighbor. If you have a nicer yard, you have even more. And yeah, you might be single, but if you get to know your neighbors, that will develop over time to a place where you can also invite each other over, over for dinner. And again, that's my hope, that when we, we build cities, when we build streets, when we build apartments, we think in also about common areas where people can actually connect and form friendships. So that, that's my hope. And then the question is, what can we do now instead of wait for the policymakers and the construction companies to do that? And I think... Um, 
Shani's story is quite inspirational. So, so Shani is a woman who lives in Perth on a through street. So not a cul-de-sac, but on a through street. And she has, she has basically taken a street and turned it into a community. So she, what she did was she just started to get to know her neighbors, asked them about their interests, asked them, what can you give? What do you need? And uh, there was a guy on the street who helped, uh, who, who needed people to help him eat strawberries because in the strawberry season he had too many. Uh, there was a, a young kid who offered to babysit uh, people's pets when they were on vacation. And she also noticed there were three ladies on the street who enjoyed singing and an ex-choir mistress. So they formed the Hobart Street Choir. And that became the first thing in, in, a, in, a, in a process that completely transformed a street. They now have pizza nights, they have movie nights, they have all sorts of fun activities. I, I think all of us would actually like to live in a street like that where we have a strong sense of community and that village feeling, even though we might be living in, in bigger cities. So my advice for the single uh, person would be get to know your neighbors because proximity is often a better, better predictor of friendship than common interests. And, and that's, I think we could do far better in, in that sense, also in, in, in Denmark. Uh, so, so that's also my hope for that. I think feeling a community of people here together tonight, that's a nice note to end on. Thank you so much, Mike, for a fascinating evening. Mike, of course, will be signing books at the back. Please join me in thanking him for a wonderful talk. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This episode starred Mike Wyking and was presented by Erica Wagner. The show is produced by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong. And our editor is John Doughty. If you enjoyed this episode, consider taking out a subscription to HowTo Plus, our membership scheme giving you half-price tickets to live events and free access to all of our live streams. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>